Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's been exactly two weeks since Kentucky's Attorney General announced no charges would be filed in the death of Breonna Taylor. Today, you'll hear from two authors who offer a measure of hope about what can be done to fix this broken system and embrace freedom. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Later, we'll hear from Princeton professor Dr. Eddie Guo Jr. about his new book on what we can learn from author and activist James Baldwin. But first, Dr. Melanie Price, political science professor at Prairie View A&M University in Texas. She's author most recently of The Race Whisperer, Barack Obama and the Political Uses of Race. She joins us to talk about her New York Times op-ed, Breonna Taylor Deserved Justice. Dr. Price, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you for having me. And congratulations on the new show. Thank you so much. Now, we've known each other a very long time, some 20 years, and I followed your work over that time, of course, and been amazed by your ability to connect that scholarly expertise to real-world challenges and problems. And so you write this op-ed for the New York Times. Why did you feel compelled to write this piece? You know, I was sitting there watching the press conference with my mother who's 77. And both of us sort of knew it wasn't going to go well and instinctively felt that it wasn't going to go well. But we just watched anyway, just in case. And I found myself thinking, how many times do, how many times do Black people find themselves in this position, right? Where people say, let the justice system do its work. And we wait and we uh, participate in the process and we wait and we wait for the investigator to do their jobs and we ask these people to do things fairly and to do things the right way and we wait and we get disappointed and I just couldn't help but think about how this isn't just about the disappointment that comes from the failure to indict anybody on the death of Brianna Taylor it's the injustice that comes from the failure to indict anyone um, on my, in Michael Brown's case, or the failure to indict anyone in Trayvon Martin, or the failure of all ki- in all kinds of ways that Black people show up to the citizenship process and actually get told your citizenship is less is of lesser value than other groups. That cumulative trauma that you speak of, the generational sharing of that trauma. You know, you you talked about watching it with your mother, and the experiences that she may have had in her life and now the experiences you're contending with. If there is that assumption that, you know, there was no surprise, why continue being a part of that process? What's the alternative then? That's the question we, that we're, that's the million dollar question. And it's the question I think that people outside of the black community seem to always think that we are going to do something to undermine, to damage, to destroy American democracy. When African-Americans are more engaged in American democracy 
they actually show more belief in it than they actually probably should. Um, it's easy to be a patriot. It's easy to be um, an American loving human being when the system is built to work for you. But African-Americans have shown time and time again, their level of patriotism, not in the ways the system works out for them, but in the ways in which they continue to try to expand, to try to enlarge what it means to be an American citizen, what freedom means, what democracy means. And so my mom was just as hopeful as she would have been for anybody else in that moment. And that's why the disappointment is also so great. That's why the anger is also so great, right? You know, I am a family of military veterans. I'm a family of um, people who have taught in the public school system. I'm a family of people who pick cotton in the Jim Crow South. And all of us vote. We all work. We pay more than $750 in taxes. So we are Americans and we want America to do its job. And the great thing about us is that we continue to ask America to do its job rather than say, we just want to burn up the whole place, which, you know, is kind of what it looks like the president is doing. When Daniel Cameron made his announcement in this press conference, and I should say that we're learning a lot more now, uh, seeing those transcripts about what was actually presented, what was withheld versus what was shared. And one of the things that Cameron said is, Mob justice is not justice. Talk to us about how that phrase, that one phrase amongst many, resonated with you and the sort of historical context that you placed that in within your op-ed. So that statement probably hit me harder than anything he said, right? I mean, much of the rest of it was what we expected to hear about pursuit of the truth and you know, all of that stuff. But when he said mob justice, standing in Kentucky, standing in a former slave state where African-Americans were the victims of mob justice for decades, for more than a century, I just thought, you really can't be doing this. As an African-American who understands the ways that law enforcement participated in mob justice by delivering Black um plaintiffs by delivering Black people to mobs to be lynched, probably in front of that courthouse where he works, because all of these courthouses have trees in front of them that Black people know as lynching trees and across the South. And so for him to say that Black people were the ones who were interested in mob justice, I think was very disrespectful because Black people, in fact, haven't found those police officers and hung them from a tree. They haven't found those police officers and done violence to them. They haven't found those police officers and harmed them in any way. And in fact, some of those police officers, the very same ones, will get their jobs back. And not only will they get their jobs back, but they will get back pay for the time they missed. That's not mob justice. That's black people asking for the actual process to work. And that's how distorted this thing is, right? Where somehow police officers have become the victim and black people have become the predator against police, right? That's not how this is working at all. And in fact, most black people continue to believe that the police are necessary. Right. I know there's this big defund the police movement, but if you ask most black, ordinary black people on the street, they still continue to believe that policing is that police are necessary. 
They just don't want to die at the hands of police. They don't want to be disrespected by police. They don't want to have to argue with police officers that they are somehow worthy of protection. They want to be able to call the police and not be afraid that they might be the ones who end up dead. It suggests that people face this impossible choice, right? Do you accept whatever is given to you? Or do you say that I can at the same time have the right to be safe and secure in my home and in my person and still not to have that fear of when I ask for help, this may be the outcome. I want to talk about these sort of (laughs) dual competing realities that you mentioned. You talk in the piece about the experience of being yelled at, having racial slurs hurled at you in Columbus, Ohio. You are the author of this book about Barack Obama. And the, the dual realities there is that people often dismiss this tension as something that only happens in obscure parts of the South. Or they believe that, look, the country elected its first Black president. We are now post-racial. How do you reconcile those tensions in terms of, you know, how we understand the ways in which race is operating in the everyday lives of people? You know, we were both raised in Southern states and then have lived outside of the South for a very long time. And there is a way in which the rest of the country uses the South as a way of defining themselves as being non-racist, right? Racism has a Southern accent in this country. Except for the fact that even when I lived in Connecticut, I saw lawn jockeys on people's yards and Confederate flags hanging in Connecticut. And I lived there for many years. And so you may say that the South, that that racism has a Southern accent, But racism's friends, racism's allies, racism's co-conspirators, they sound Midwestern. They sound sound like Northeasterners. They sound like people from from Seattle. And Mm -hmm. so I think America really has to contend with the notion, not just that individuals are racist, right? I don't think that that's really our biggest problem. It's a problem, but it's not our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is that we haven't reconciled the fact that America was founded on principles that sought to to devalue the lives of human beings. And everything that has flowed from that founding principle has meant that certain groups have been excluded from the process. Until you acknowledge the ways that race plays out in the American political system, in the American social system, then we're never going to be able to reconcile this moment or any other. I mean, there are all kinds of ways. But see, to acknowledge that is to acknowledge your privilege. And once you acknowledge your privilege and you don't do anything about it, you don't do anything to make things more equal, then you actually become a co-conspirator in the process, right? And nobody wants to be a co-conspirator. Well, hopefully, no one wants to be a co-conspirator in other people's oppression. So it's better to deny that it exists at all, because then you have to do something about it. If that sort of willful ignorance is used as a coping mechanism, I'm also struck about what young people learn about that coping. And you write about 
preparing black children to live in a racist society. You have now returned to your alma mater, Prairie View A&M University, which is an historically black university, which like many other HBCUs across the country has seen an increase in enrollments and interest often a a direct consequence of students and families saying, I need my child to be in a space where they can be affirmed. And you talked about, you know, living in Connecticut and, and, and other places and now returning home. What's the conversation that you are having with your students in this moment or in these moments about how they navigate their way forward? So, you know, this is interesting because it's pretty tricky for us we have, as a university, been involved in uh, fights against voter suppression since the 1970s against the county where we are situated, which is predominantly rural, predominantly white, and predominantly Republican. And since 18-year-olds got the right to vote in the 1970s, that county has worked diligently to prevent the students on that campus from participating in their electoral process knowing that universities are a voting block, especially black colleges, and black votes are primarily democratic. And so if they let those 9,000 students vote in that rural county, which has probably 40,000, 30, 40,000 people in it, then they will have extreme leverage power over Mm -hmm. who runs that county. And so our students are very much in tune um, to voting. They're very much in tune to the political process. But it's also the home of Sandra Bland, right? And so they know the kinds of things that even in this black cocoon where they are educated, they know that the minute they step just outside of that campus, then they are, go- they are open and vulnerable to the experiences of everyone else. And so they are trying to figure out whether it's still worth it to participate in the process. And it's our job to tell them Yes, it is, Mm -hmm. right? It's our job to tell them that Mm -hmm. politics is a toolbox and you use Mm -hmm. all the tools available to you. You protest, you sue, which we are currently doing. You, um, but you also vote. You do Mm -hmm. all of it. And one is not more important than the other. They all go together and constitute um, a strategy for fixing the problem. And so I see it as hope and I try to, frame it for them as hopeful, right? Not that we know the future, but when your educational space is situated on a former plantation site and your ancestors have taken that plantation site and transformed it into a place that has educated tens and thousands of their children, how can you not participate in the process? It's foolish of you to believe that you don't. And so it's our job to continually continually remind you of that that you are a witness to your ancestors and you are to do the work that they have not been able to do. They started this process and you are to continue their work by being full citizens of this country. You know, I think we need to to lift up 
more sharing of those stories and experiences. I often worry about our young people and the repeated messages they receive. And what you just shared is about the connection that they have to a legacy of resistance, a, a legacy of empowerment, but also about allowing young people to chart on their own terms what that role would be. And in spite of that, that that hope that you mentioned that, uh, and not in some sort of vacuous sense of being optimistic, but of acknowledging what is, we also know that the governor of Texas has recently announced that he will reduce the number of uh, early voting drop-off places from 12 down to one in Harris County, which I believe has a population of, of over 5 million it has 4.6 million people. That's, I live in Harris County. It's 2,000 square miles, the size of Rhode Island. So now that many people will have one place. One place to drop off all mail-in ballots where they had 12 before all over the county. Um, he claims that it is because of questions of voter security. Um, I think... Harris County has the ability to protect 12 boxes where you can collect information. Here's the other thing too. It's also done as a way to try to make it seem like you're being fairer to other counties. And so it's a way that the state of Texas has restricted election, early, early voting, because it has to be uh, um, fair in all of the counties, but all the counties are not the same. I just keep asking myself, why don't these people want more access to the ballot. Why wouldn't the governor want everybody who has the opportunity to vote? Why would you suggest that sending mail-in ballots out to senior citizens who are vulnerable to COVID somehow be a, a bad thing? Are we a democracy or are we not? Do we want citizens to participate or do we not? You know, one of the things that uh, you and I both tell our students all the time is that the rules of the game matter. And that intersection between individual interest and effort and institutional constraint can result in Supreme Court cases like Shelby County v. Holder in 2013 that not only gutted the Voting Rights Act of 1965, but directly spoke to the questions that you just mentioned about for whom is democracy intended and who gets to set the terms of that and what it means. And in the time that we have left, I want to end with this piece from your op-ed where you say, this is what forces Black people to push for this nation to be better stewards of its ideal while recalibrating our expectations time and time again. As we think about the tremendous potential that we are facing in this year when so many of our norms or expectations have been disrupted and people are trying to figure out how to create something that is better or something that would actually protect uh, a Breonna Taylor or a Sandy Bland. What is the change that you think needs to happen? You know, um, I think the Voting Rights Act has to be put back in place and it has to be as strong as it was before. 
there has to be legislation around preclearance that stops these jurisdictions from changing this. If the Voting Rights Act was still in place, there'd be no way the governor could have done what he did. He couldn't have done it. But it's not in place. People have to pay more attention to their state legislators and what they're doing, right? Because they control the voting process more than probably anybody. If you really want Americans to participate, if you want this to be a simple process, then let the process work or explain yourself. Just admit that you're not a Democrat. And that's small d. You don't believe in democracy. And, you know, we have to continue to make our voices heard. We have to figure out what the police are going to do about themselves. I mean, there's something for everybody. Anybody who is like, this world seems like it is um, upside down and I don't know how to fix it. There's something for everybody to do. And if you're sitting at home listening to this and you're trying to think of a thing to do, then I tell you the first thing you can do is talk to the people who live on your street, talk to the people who you are in constant contact with, and talk to them about why you're moved by the things that you hear, right? Talk to them about why you're going to vote and how you're going to vote, right? Part of the problem is women spend too much time advocating for women's rights. And Black people spend too much time advocating for Black white rights. And at some point, people hear us say, you know, I'm a Black woman and I deserve rights. And people are like, oh, Black women are always saying that. Maybe if you as a white woman told your, your, your white friends, Black people deserve certain rights as a white person, maybe it wouldn't sound like self-interest. Maybe it would sound like a logical argument. We don't know until we try. And we need you to try in this moment. Dr. Melanie Price is endowed professor of political science at Prairie View A&M University, and she is the author most recently of The Race Whisperer, Barack Obama, and the Political Uses of Race. Thank you for joining Disrupted, Professor Price. Always a pleasure. Coming up, Princeton University professor Eddie Glaude Jr. talks about what we can learn from American writer and activist James Baldwin. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. The future of the Negro in this country is precisely as bright or as dark as the future of the country. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. James Baldwin was a prominent figure in the civil rights movement. In the end, though, he was disillusioned by the failure of that movement to force America to confront its lies about race. Our next guest has been studying Baldwin to understand what his writings can teach us about today. Eddie Claude Jr. is the James S. McDonald Distinguished Professor of African American Studies and Chair of the Department at Princeton University. He's an MSNBC contributor, author of several books, including Democracy and Black, and his most recent is Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Our Own. Before we get into some of the lessons of Baldwin, I asked him to respond to the recent ruling on the death of Breonna Taylor. My, my, my initial reaction was just simply anger. You know, in, in, the, in the indictment itself, there's no mention of her. That the level of disregard has reached a point of complete erasure. And there's a sense in which, you know, we've talked about the data around, you know, uh, growing distrust of, of government and the like. Uh, but we see um, a reasonable 
distrust uh, among African Americans that justice will ever be in fact just when it comes to uh, holding people accountable who take the lives of, of, of black men and women. Um, and the Breonna Taylor case was just simply a stark example of that. Uh, but it was just another example of, of, of a litany of examples that the country just simply doesn't value Black lives as it values other lives, particularly white lives. I think a lot of people felt after the death of George Floyd that there was the potential for a change, that you know people of all backgrounds were asking, this is wrong, what do we do? I want to do something. And a lot of people who had previously avoided these issues seemed that they were ready to address them. And yet what you just said means that this is a recurring pattern in American history where we seem to be on this cusp of major change and then we go backwards. Why do you think that happens? Well, you know, I think it's because, you know, I think the through line of American history is, is what I call the value gap. And that is this belief that white people matter more than others. And that belief shapes our dispositions. It, it, it informs our social, political, and economic arrangements. And it's not going to be uprooted in one moment, you know? And what the value gap would look like in the context of slavery is gonna look very different than, uh, than the context of Jim Crow or the context of the first black man in the White House. But what we do know is that we're habituated in this society uh, to value certain lives more than others. And then we tell ourselves a lie, as I write in the book, to, to hide what we're doing, right? To obscure what we're doing, to protect our innocence in the face of, of what Jimmy would say in what he said or wrote in The Fire Next Time, that the country is destroying thousands of thousands upon lives daily, right? Uh, and is guilty of it. So I think, you know, it's, 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 it's really fascinating for me, Doc, when, when you see uh, these moments of reckoning where the country has a chance to be different, to imagine itself otherwise, to invoke a Sean Crawley. And then it wants to congratulate itself that it has reached that point. It, want to, it wants to rush to self-congratulation. And at that moment of self-congratulation, change is arrested. And then we see the reassertion of the law. You say that our democracy is broken, but for some people it may seem that democracy is working exactly the way that it intended. If in fact this lie does exist, was American democracy ever intended to actually value black lives or to affirm the space for those voices to matter within our democratic process? So, you know, I think both of those things can be true in, in an odd way, right? So on the one hand, we could just simply make the claim, and I think the evidence will bear it out, that we've built the country true, that the inequality, that the position of white uh, American men in particular um, on top uh, represent in some ways a set of values that uh, animated uh, those that we've described as founders and animate uh, the way in which the society has, has evolved over time. So there's that, right? Uh, and you know, you know, the political theorist uh, Judith Scar would say that American democracy, you know, America didn't really become a democracy until the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Right. So, so, so then the second description is that not so much about you know progressing to a democratic society, but using democracy as an ideal against which 
to judge our, our failures, our practices. And so, yes, it is true uh, that we have built the country true. And yes, it is true that any aspiration to in, instantiating democracy in this place is broken, that democracy itself is suspended, that, it's, that it has never instantiated itself uh, in, any real, in any real sense. But I think when I say that our democracy is broken, I'm actually saying something even more challenging, I think, and that is even the illusion to be a democracy. That is broken, that has collapsed. Uh, and, 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 and so now everything is out in the open about who we are, who, who we are and who we value. If the system is broken, if the illusion is broken, and yet here we are on the cusp of this major election, where the messaging that's going out to people is that the heart of democracy is at stake and that people need to vote. And yet we are also in a year where we have lost Congressman John Lewis. We're in the 55th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act and still seeing these dogged attempts to undermine that protection of the most basic tool of democracy being the vote. How are you feeling going into this election cycle about the potential or about our need to be realistic about what's at stake? Um, I think there's, there is a sense that there are forces that are, that are clear uh, ab about undermining uh, the very foundation of American democracy. Right. And so by understanding that 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 our opponents are those who are using the democratic process to actually undermine. It, right. Who are who are bent on uh, denying certain folk access to the vote so that they can then exploit the process to continue to pursue their power grab. It, 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 it is incumbent upon us to understand the nature and scope of the enemy. To put it to put it bluntly, um, and and that is that we're we're battling folk who are not committed to democracy at all, and and if we if if I'm right in that regard, that then it seems to me uh, we have to be uh, even more attentive, even more aggressive in our defense of of the right to vote. But what does that space look like for Black voters and for Black communities overall? who feel that they've marched and not seen the difference, who feel that they voted and not seen the difference, and maybe in this state of malaise right now of feeling like it doesn't matter. How do we hold that tension between the realities of what we're hearing from people marching in the streets and then also the realities of what we know about the opposition, however that is defined and framed? Yeah, it's, it's a very hard balance because I, you know, I, I take the judgment that that nothing's going to change um, at, to be a fundamental uh, uh, indictment and conviction of of how broken the political process is. Right? It's not a matter of of lethargy. It's not a matter of being disengaged and the like. It's actually a substantive judgment of the political system in relation to our community. So I want to understand that for what it is. But I also want to use that judgment as the kind of ground for a certain kind of organizing. It's not, it's not enough to just simply say that people died for the vote. People didn't die for the vote, people died for freedom. And the vote is a tool within that, right? And so part of what we have to do is to kind of begin to, to understand the power of, of the franchise in our hands. What we do know is that we need to see the back of Donald Trump's head. 
because his policies are killing us, killing us disproportionately. When we think about COVID-19, when we think about deregulation, when we think about healthcare, his policies are killing us, right? And we do know when we think about the Venn diagram of the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, there's a, pure, there's a space of overlap between the corporate Democrats and the corporate Republicans. And we know that a lot of this is driven by corporations who continue to push greed uh, as the primary value. So we got to be clear about this, right? But I think it's important for those of us who are, who are trying to organize and mobilize in this political environment to let our folk know the power we actually have, not to invest everything in the vote, uh, because that only sets us up for disappointment, but to understand what does it mean to engage the political process in this moment and beyond, right? Not only at the level of the, of, of the presidential election, but all the down ballot elections, and then once we get beyond the election, right? How do we mobilize our strength and power for, for ends and purposes beyond just simply you know, uh, showing up at the polls because Democrats say we should, or showing at the polls because some black leaders say we says we should, but to actually to actually use our political power to transform uh, our circumstances. Now that's a hard case to make, uh, uh, but we have to make it over and over again. I heard you speak here in Connecticut a few years ago at a, I believe it was an NAACP Freedom Fund banquet. And I remember something that you said in the speech that stood out and you asked the, the question very simply, where is your power? And I remember the audience stopped because it seems like such a deceptively simple question. But I think in this moment where many people feel overwhelmed, reminding them of that power and sense of agency is important. In this electoral cycle, in the uprisings that we're seeing, the affirmation of people's discontent, where is the power as you see it? Well, the power is in the streets, the power is in the ballot, at the ballot box, the power is evidenced in our local communities um, and how we organize, right? The power is in us to echo Miss Ella Baker, you know? We're the leaders we've been looking for. Um, and I think this is really important for us to kind of wrap our minds around. We've been engaged in, in what, you know, um, some scholars have described as this kind of custodial model of black politics, that we outsource our strength to some leader who will then engage in a kind of broker, brokering uh, negotiation with the powers that be, and then we get uh, uh, the crumbs or we get access, or some people get invitations to attend the dinner or to attend the event at the White House, right? But part of what we do know is that folk are risking their lives in this moment because they're in the streets at the moment in which COVID-19 is killing us disproportionately, right? They're in the streets because police are killing us no matter the pandemic. They're in the streets in some ways because you know the economic depression that, that the country is experiencing is killing us. Um, and so I think, where do we find our power? It's in us if we organize and mobilize and not just simply follow. And I think that's, that's the key, right? And that, that's gonna require, I think, disrupting the traditional mode of black politics in this country. That's Eddie Glaude Jr., James S. McDonald, Distinguished Professor of African-American Studies at Princeton, author of Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Our Own. When we come back, We'll continue our conversation with Professor Glaude. This is Disrupted. 
I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. We're talking with Dr. Eddie Glaw Jr. He's professor of African-American studies at Princeton. His most recent book is Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its urgent lessons for our own. In 2016, Glaw wrote a controversial column in Time magazine called My Democratic Problem Voting for Hillary Clinton. In the column, he said, voting for the status quo threatens our lives. I asked him, considering this current moment, if he regrets writing it. I know I made a mistake. Yeah, I write about this in the book, right? I should have known better. Uh, So look, I thought we had an opening for eight years. Uh, In some ways, the way in which Black people could hail the state was muted. So many folk were trying to protect uh, Barack Obama's, you know, left flank and right flank, you know, trying to beat back the racism that was coming at him in droves, right? And so the Great Recession uh, had devastated our communities, you know, in terms of the housing collapse, in terms of uh, what, the entire gains of of the 90s wiped out. And you didn't hear people screaming at the top of their lungs because people were trying to protect uh, the left flank or back flank or whatever we want to describe it, trying to protect Barack Obama. So I thought we had an opening, right, to begin to break the back of Clintonism and its hold on, on, on the Democratic Party. Because once Obama was out of office, we can then make uh, explicit the hell that we were catching. Then when they nominated Donald Trump, I thought we really had an open. And the reason why I thought it was, I said, there's no way, now this is where I made the mistake, there's no way uh, they're gonna elect someone so obviously unqualified to be the leader of the free world. And I should have known better, being a lifelong reader of Baldwin, I should have known that white folk would have reached for that fantasy. And so I overestimated white folk. And then I lost sight of what Jimmy was saying in that 1979-1980 election, because Carter had turned his back on us too. Uh, there's a reason why Carter lost, because we didn't turn out like we should have, right? Uh, and, and, and Baldwin says, you know, voting sometimes is, is buying oneself some time. Um, and I should have known that, but I thought we had an opening to really push, to risk everything in that moment. I think it's, It's powerful to think about how those individual choices exist within a broader system and a broader structure. And one of the things that I really, it resonates with me listening to you talk about this work and how you reference Baldwin as Jimmy, because there's a proximity there. And at the same time, you talk about avoiding reading his work for a long time because of the pain and the rage and the trauma that forces his readers to contend with. You are author of this amazing new book, Why Return to Baldwin at This Time? You know, I was trying to grapple with my despair, trying to grapple with my disillusionment. You know, I written Democracy in Black, I was angry in that text. I was angry with Obama. I was angry with my friends who muted their critical voices, I thought, um, during that eight, in those eight years. And I found myself trying to pick up the pieces in some ways, because I was watching also those activists in Ferguson who, who risked everything, you know? And many of them were dying. They were dying of suicide. At least that's what they said. That's what they were reporting. 
And so I was like, what, what can I, how can I respond to this moment? How can I manage my own despair? And I remembered, because I'm a, you know, ever since I made that fateful choice to, to confront and read Baldwin, um, um, he's always been a walking partner. He's, there's an intimate relationship with him. He's always in my head. And so I returned to him and I, rem- and I remember and recall uh, how he had to grapple with the fact that they murdered King. How he had to grapple with the fact that those young, young students who risked everything on behalf of a nonviolent commitment to transforming the nation who saw terror, raw terror, had, were now screaming black power, right? So I knew he had been through it. So I wanted to return to him to help me get through this, to help us get through it. So I wanted to mine what he called the ruins. And in those, in those ruins, I found Begin Again. You know, I think about Baldwin, the time that he was writing, and then the time that you're writing within. And one of the things that's in the book is America is always changing, but America never changes. What needs to change? And then how do we get to that kind of change that needs to happen? You know, we have to tell the truth about who we are. You know, um, if we keep, we can't lie anymore. And that, that, revol- that involves uprooting this, this belief that white people matter more than others. And uprooting that will require of us confronting, you know, the bitterness at the bottom of the cup or the shards beneath our feet. You know, as Baldwin said in 1962, you know, the trouble is deeper than we wish to think because the trouble is in us. And so that requires, you know, telling the truth about, about our beginnings, settler colonial nation, telling the truth about what we've done to Native peoples, telling the truth about what does it mean to organize a society based upon the idea that some people, because of the color of their skin, ought to be valued more and to build a country based on that, such that the built environment socializes you and me and our children into those assumptions, right? Um, you know, I believe with Brian Stevenson that you gotta, like, you know, truth and reconciliation is sequential. You gotta tell the truth before reconciliation can happen. And once we reconcile, we can begin repair, you see. Um, and so what do we need to do? You know, 1619 Project was a gesture at this. Tell us, a, tell ourselves a different story that will orient us differently, that will bring into view different things, that will allow us to imagine ourselves otherwise. Let me say this really quickly. Baldwin, near the end of his life, would, would invoke, um, you know, Rev- Second Revelations, chapter, you know, verse five, to do one's first works over. And, you know, the way in which I brought that home to myself is, you know, I was raised by this working class black man who scared the living daylights out of me. He could just look at me and I would tremble. And if I, would, if I was to be a different kind of father to my son, I would have to go back and figure out what happened to me. The choices that were made, right? And I didn't do that, so I duplicated some things. And so the nation, if it's going to have to be otherwise, we got to go back and, 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 and assess our choices, you see? What set us down this path as opposed to the other one, if we're going to imagine ourselves otherwise? Uh, if we don't, then, you know, we'll stay on the racial hamster wheel or more, or I should put it bluntly, um, this failed experiment will, will fail once and for all. But to tell the truth is in and of itself a revolutionary act. 
but it's also a dangerous act. It means giving up the the comfort, whether it's a false sense of security or not, giving up the illusion that some people have about what it means to be okay or what it means to be uh, making it as some people would think of it. But it also means putting on the line what people have built up as their sense of value. How do we encourage more people to take that risk, to understand how these dual pandemics of 2020 have revealed much for some people and for others have just shown them what they have always known? You know, I don't know how we convinced them outside of modeling it in our own lives. All of us, every day, face the temptation of the bribe, where you can sit comfortably in your, in your space and not say anything and, and pursue uh, the American dream. Its only cost is that you have to keep quiet. You have to adjust yourself to injustice. Baldwin knew when he did not decry Black power, he knew the cost. There's a reason why he never got a Nobel. Right. He knew what he was doing when he when he gave voice to the anger and rage that was in him and in those young folk that he promised that he would never betray. I'm still catching hell over my criticisms of Obama and my decision in 2016 um, and the like. Um, we just what is what does it mean to be? How can I put this and 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 be as and not be melodramatic, but what does it mean to be true to one's mama? To be true to, to Ruby Wilson and, and the folk who made me possible, right? What is, what is the condition for the possibility of a just world? Well, one of them is that I, I can't sell my soul, you know? So I think part of the answer to your question is how do we model that in our own lives? Willing to speak truth to power, willing to risk everything, Right, not being naive, but willing to speak directly to the moment, you know? Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense, especially when we think about cancel culture, that it's easy to call folks out. It is much more difficult to understand the ways in which we become complicit in that which we deny. And it also humanizes us. That, that same sense of grace that we want to extend to other people, we have to extend to ourselves. And that brings me to the title of the book, Begin Again. To begin again suggests that it is possible to do so, that these mistakes are not fatal, but that there is the potential to learn from that past, to harvest those lessons. And so I want to end with this quote from Baldwin that ironically comes from the jacket of the book, where Baldwin says, not everything is lost. Responsibility cannot be lost. It can only be abdicated. If one refuses abdication, one begins again. So Eddie Glaude, how do we begin again? You know, it's a, it's a wonderful question. And it, you know, that quotation comes from his last novel, Just Above My Head. And it's an assessment of the ruins. They've killed King. The movement is is fractured. Some of some of our, some of the friends and some of the people we love are dead. Some have gone mad. Some have left the country. What do you do in the face of 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 
of, of betrayal. Well, you, you know, you have to make the decision whether or not you're just going to give it up. And if you refuse to, right, then you, then you begin again, you pick yourself up and you figure out, you know, this is what Jimmy meant by hope is invented every day. That's not, that's not an optimistic view. That's somebody who's trying to get up in the morning. And so how do we begin again? Well, the first thing we have to do is tell the truth about how we got here. The second thing we have to do, and of course it's involved, this is in, implied in the first, is that we have to muster the courage to tell that truth and then to act on it. We have to risk everything right now, everything. We can't tinker around the edges. You know, and that's the thing that we always do in these moments. We tinker around the edges because we're afraid we're gonna lose white folk. I write in the book very clearly that the idea of white America is irredeemable. There's nothing about it that can be salvaged. Any of you that believes that because of the color of your skin, you ought to be valued more than others, there's nothing you can do with that. But it doesn't follow from that, that we are irredeemable. We have to begin with grace and love to imagine ourselves being together differently. And that's gonna require asking the hard questions, taking the rude positions, and doing so at the pitch of passion, to echo Henry James. So tell the truth, muster the courage to risk everything right now. And then perhaps, with no guarantee, perhaps we can play, put in place the conditions to begin again. Eddie Glaude Jr. is the James S. McDonald Distinguished Professor of African American Studies at Princeton University. His latest book is Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Our Own. Disrupted is produced by Daniela Luna and Katie Tolarski. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.